Open your Bibles to the book of Philemon this morning, the book of Philemon. Now let me just start by saying I do know the difference between the Old and the New Testament, and I realize this is not the book of Daniel. We have two remaining sermons in that uh, great book, and one will cover Daniel's final vision, and then the very ending of the book in chapter 12. But I was going to preach... This message that I worked on uh, last week, when I was supposed to be away, and quite frankly, it, it gripped my heart, and it is a message on the doctrine of forgiveness, and I want to share it with you this morning. It would not be an understatement to say that forgiveness is one of the most important truths in the Bible. Grasping it is vital to understand what God has forgiven us, if you mess up the, the doctrine of forgiveness, you, you won't grasp the, the gospel. You don't understand the depth of your sin and then what, what God has, has done in foregoing the, the right that He had to pour out His wrath on you, but in, instead pour that out on His Son. You'll, you'll have a, a muted gospel. It's, the doctrine is crucial to, to grasp... Uh, an understanding of how we're to forgive others. It's necessary to learn how we're to seek forgiveness of those that, that we have wronged. In fact, forgiveness is one of the first graces that, that shows up in, a, in the Christian life. I mean, the first awareness, the first grace is an awareness of God. You had no awareness of, of God, not the God of the Bible. But so the first thing that happens is that you see Him and who He is, that He's holy and that He's, He's breathtaking. And your response to that, seeing God as we sing, I was blind but now I see, your response to seeing God is, is confession of who you are and then that's followed by repentance toward God and faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then immediately uh, upon being right with God, a new Christian instinctively wants to be right with others, especially those that they have wronged. They want to extend the same forgiveness that they have received, and they also want to seek forgiveness for, for their own offenses. It's not something that's taught, but it's like a spring bubbling up in their hearts. It's just instinctual. I can remember one of the first few couples that came to Christ whenever I was was preaching as a, as a young pastor. Both of them came to the Lord on Sunday morning, uh, and they had been living together for five or six years. Uh, they'd been attending for, I don't know, a few months, and so I was going over to their house on a Monday or Tuesday night afterwards to talk to them about next steps and, and baptism. And, and to a certain degree, I was praying. I wouldn't say wringing my hands, but saying, all right, Lord, how do I deal with the reality of what's going on there? And I and I said, you'll give me the words to say, and it, it turned out not even to be my words. I went and sat down with them, and the first thing that they said was, was well, uh, Pastor Brian, before we go anywhere else, we, we want to talk about we need to get married. Uh, we've been living wrongly for now, and, and, and we need some direction on how to be, be right with other things. I didn't even have to do anything. It was just instinctual. They came to Christ, and they knew that things needed to, to change. When I came to the Lord, I had wrecked relationships strewn everywhere by the choices that, that I'd made. I was bitter towards some people, dodged my sin toward others. And I think of one person in particular that I didn't speak to for a really long time, but once I came to Christ, I found my heart totally changed. 
All the bitterness was transformed into a desire to reconcile with them. I even called the person up, offered forgiveness, and then asked forgiveness for treating them poorly. It was one of the greatest feelings I'd ever had. I mean, it never taught me to do that. It was just something instinctual. And on the flip side, probably just as difficult or more so, I began to think of all the people that I'd wronged, and that was a long list. Some I'd sinned against greatly, and I... I wanted to seek their forgiveness, every single one of them. Some I couldn't find, some it wasn't wise, but I wanted to, I yearned for it. It was in my heart. That's because it's really God's heart. And now with His heart beating in yours, it it changes things. It's been said that a Christian is never acting more like God than when he or she forgives. And we know that's true because that's the way that God speaks about Himself. We went over this passage a number of times. I don't think this is working, guys. We went over this passage a number of times. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where God proclaims who He is for the first time. And what He says is remarkable. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a, a God grace, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God is asked by Moses to reveal who he really is, God says, this is the way I want to be known. This is what he leads with. I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger. I I abound in covenant-keeping love toward my people, and I forgive. And God has many attributes, but this is how he summarizes himself. And think of it as as God's core character. If you had one chance or you wanted to lead with something about yourself, what would you say about yourself? What marks you? This is what God leads with. He goes on to say He's just and His righteousness will be maintained in in judging uncovered, unforgiven sin, but He leads with offering forgiveness to those who will come to Him for it. And if that is who our God is, then 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 that's surely something that that His followers should, should imitate. And the theme of forgiveness is not just in in the Old Testament, but but it's central to the New Testament as well. I think there there are two revelatory mountain peaks uh, where the doctrine of forgiveness is written in bold letters in the New Testament. One is in Luke 15, you know it as the prodigal son, and and the other is in Matthew 18, verse 22, where, where Peter asks the Lord, How many times should I forgive? One focuses on our forgiveness toward, uh, uh, God's forgiveness toward us, and the other focuses on our forgiveness toward others. God forgives graciously and lavishly, and the prodigal passage illustrates what that looks like. I mean, you remember, even before the wicked son gets the words of confession out of his mouth, the father is running to embrace him, and and he receives him and forgives him. And that's what God's forgiveness looks like. But Matthew 18 focuses on our forgiveness toward toward others. And in Matthew 18, verse 21, Peter says, in verse 21, he's asking a practical question after Jesus' teaching about confronting people in sin. Peter says, if somebody sins against me and I forgive him, how many times uh, do I do that? Up to seven times? 
And the rabbinical teaching said that you should forgive the, the same person three times, but, but after that it was too much. This is a quote from rabbinical teaching. If a man commits a transgression, the first and second and third time he is forgiven, but the fourth time he is not forgiven. They base that on Amos 2.6, which has a specific application to Israel. But Amos 2.6 says, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, says the Lord. And so Peter thought he was being very generous by, by saying seven. But look at what Jesus says in response. Jesus said to him, I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You know those words well. You've probably read that passage. In other words, you forgive as many times as someone sins against you, and they seek it. And what's the point of that? It's not three times or even seven times. It's 490 times. And the point is, no one can possibly keep count of that many offenses to decide when you've reached your limit. Okay, I'm up to 489. All right, the, the, the next one, you're out of here. That's precisely the point. Keeping count is not genuine forgiveness. If an offense is sincerely forgiven, it can't be held against the uh, offender. It, it's not accounted to them anymore. It's forgiven. It's removed from the ledger. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. And it's not forgotten, but forgiven. It's no longer something that, that, that remains a debt that you owe. And the rabbi's system, and even Peter's in effect, negated biblical forgiveness because it required the offended party to keep a record of forgiven offenses and then stop forgiving when the limit was reached. And 70 times 7 shatters all the limits. It sets the standard so high that it would be pointless to keep an account because the sort of love Christians are called to have mirrors the Lord's. As 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love keeps no record of wrong. And you say, that's impossible. No, it's not. Not with the alien love that comes from God flowing in you. It is impossible with you, but the verse that's thrown around, all things are possible with God, applies in this case. It is love that's alien from you. It is love that you have experienced, and it is love then, while thou that being resident in your heart, you can express to, to others. And the very clear notion of all of this is that God is a forgiving God, and if we are, are His people, we're, we're to be forgiving as well. And what does the Lord teach us when, when the disciples ask Him to teach us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or one of the earliest epistles in the New Testament, James, there will be judgment without mercy for those who have not been merciful themselves. You don't want to be an unmerciful person or somebody that the hand of mercy has to be pried open because God responds to you in the same way. Or the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And you and I have been granted lavish mercy and forgiveness from the Lord, so we should give it. And we know that. We know that theologically. We, we know those passages that we just read. We know 70 times 7. 
But there are practical questions that, that, that remain. How do we do that? And that's where the book of Philemon comes in. The book of Philemon is a case study about how forgiveness horizontally, not vertically, but horizontally between two sinners are put into practice. You can think of it as an illustration in the practice of forgiveness. It helps us put this, this, this doctrine into, into real life. And Philemon was a believer who is called on by Paul to forgive his runaway slave who, who had wronged him greatly. And in that we learn how to forgive those who have wronged us. Now you can look at this from two angles. You can look at this from the forgiver, who is Philemon, or you can look at it from the one forgiven, who is Onesimus. We're going to look at it from Philemon's perspective the, this morning. And as you do, we're going to see four applications of scriptural forgiveness in this letter. In forgiveness, responsibility is regarded in verses 4 through 12. In forgiveness, rights are acknowledged in verses 13 through 14. And in forgiveness, relationships are applied in verses 15 and 16. And then rounding out this wonderful letter in verses 17 through 22, repayment is offered in scriptural forgiveness. Let me show you the, the first one. In scriptural forgiveness, responsibility for wrong is not denied but fully regarded. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, to Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and our Chippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, written to Philemon, who was a Christian, and that the church met in his house. And in verse 19, Paul says that he's the one, or implies that he's the one who led Philemon to the Lord. Look at, look at verse 19. It says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. So this is Paul's direct letter to Philemon. And he says, I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. That's a, the idea is, I led you to the Lord. And Paul is writing from his first prison confinement in Rome. And from there, he sends four amazing letters. Philippians, which we finished, uh, I think, a year or so ago. Ephesians, Colossians, which we did years ago. And then this personal letter to Philemon, who was a Christian also in Colossae. And the church is meeting in his home. This is the only personal letter of those four that we have record of that Paul sent from prison. And he does so because he has a purpose. Drop down, if you would, to verse 8. After... Beginning with these introductory expressions of love and faith and thanksgiving for Philemon, he says this, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ in order to, uh, for you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my prison. So after this introduction, he, he quickly moves to an appeal. Here's the purpose that I'm writing. And Philemon was led to Christ by Paul. He probably met Paul on his time of 
three years in Ephesus. And Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. And the issue between Philemon and Onesimus is the context of this letter. Onesimus had run away and even stolen money from Philemon. But something amazing had happened to this slave. Several years after Philemon, his master's salvation, Paul was sent as a prisoner to Rome and Onesimus runs away to Rome, a capital city. There, there's over a million people there, probably some place that he might think is easy to hide, but you can't hide from God. And so Onesimus runs into Paul and he hears him preach and, and he's converted. And, and when he comes to Christ, this this man is transformed, his life is transformed, and then he becomes a great help to the Apostle Paul. Look, if you would, at verse 11. What he says is part of his appeal. He's talking about Onesimus here. Who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So Onesimus, after coming to Christ, immediately goes into service and He's serving the Apostle Paul there in prison. Maybe he he served him with parchments. Uh, Maybe he cooked meals. I mean, we don't know. What we do know is now this man is a believer and he's useful to one of God's chosen servants. But he's also a criminal, isn't he? So now what? Does his conversion negate that? Does his conversion negate that he's a slave? Does his conversion negate that he's a criminal? I mean, will Paul write in this letter, uh, if God has forgiven Onesimus, who can bring charge against God's elect? He would if he was talking about spiritual charges, but, but Onesimus has earthly charges. And salvation doesn't negate the wrongs that you have done here. It, it wipes your slate clean with God, but it doesn't remove laws that you've broken. And Onesimus had stolen from Philemon, and, and then losing a, an indentured servant or an employee that was, that was probably under contract in some way would, would only increase his, his cost. And, and not only that, Onesimus had broken Roman law. I mean, if he were caught as a thief and a runaway, he would have been arrested And the punishment would have been he would have been branded with with an F fugitivus on his forehead and then beaten. And stealing on top of that surely would have been death. Probably crucifixion. And Paul knows this. And so he sends him back for Onesimus to take responsibilities for his wrongs. Now, now don't, don't miss this. Here is Christian Onesimus now, sent by Christian Paul to Christian Philemon to face responsibility. And that's the first application. In scriptural forgiveness, responsibility for wrong is not avoided. It's not dismissed. It's not washed over. It's recognized and it is regarded. Paul says in verse 11, he has the authority to command Philemon to forgive, but... But he appealed to him. He appealed to him and his appeal was in love. He acknowledges the wrong and then he appeals. Look if you would at verse verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. 
Since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten, salvation, in my imprisonment. Two times he uses the word appeal. He had the right by position. He was an apostle. He had the evident, ex- evident experience to direct Philemon. I mean, he's a prisoner for Christ. But he appeals. He appeals in love. But he never says there was no wrong done. Or just to forget it, he never pretends there wasn't a grievous sin committed because there was. And that's the first step to forgiveness. And its counterpart, which is repentance. I mean, when someone is truly repentant, they'll fully acknowledge their sin and, and their guilt. And, and then they're willing to receive what, what comes as part of it. Uh, yes, I'm guilty, but it's not the heart of a believer. The word but is a little word, but it reveals what's really going on in the, in the heart. Forgiveness comes from God, but it comes to the broken and the contract, not to the justifying. In fact, a, a change of mind about your sin is a condition of the promise of forgiveness. I mean, to be forgiven for your sin, you must confess your sin, right? Meaning you say the same thing about your sin as God does. It's not just a mantra. You don't just get in the little booth and, and, and talk to the guy on the other side of the, of the wall and just say these words. You see your sin the way that God does. You've been brought to the place where you recognize the full weight of what you have done and then you acknowledge that. You, you confess that. You say the same thing about yourself that God says about you. So an unrepentant person can't be forgiven because there's no change of mind. There's therefore no confession. Because you can't confess what you, you don't own. And so a request for mercy is impossible. I mean, what is the forgiveness applied to without confession? That doesn't mean you understand everything about your sin or what it does or how it's affected others or the depths of your offense to God. But, but there is a, there's an acknowledgement. Someone who is repentant has a real change of mind about their heart and their sin and in Confession, they're acknowledging that. And when we come to Christ, we take full responsibility for the wrong, don't we? I mean, we say, I'm a sinner, I, am, I deserve what comes to me, I agree, whatever you bring, I will receive. I mean, the example the New Testament gives is the publican who stands in the back, who won't even come to the front where the offering is being made, and he, he smote his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's an acknowledgement there. There's something going on in that man's heart. But we don't excuse any accountability for it or justify ourselves. We make appeals in love. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Based on your love, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, the prayer of salvation is a request for mercy, not some magic formula to make all your problems go away. It is a cry to God for mercy. Appeal. It's an appeal. You appeal to the Lord. And God in Christ responds by granting mercy. But, but you won't receive that without taking responsibility for your sin that you've committed. Because Onesimus was repentant, he took full responsibility for his wrong. And Paul knows that in order for forgiveness to take place, Onesimus must return and own up to what Philemon could rightly require of him. And the Roman law could rightly require of him. And that's the second application. Second application of scriptural forgiveness is rights of those wrongs are uh, wronged are not deprived but acknowledged. 
Responsibility is not denied, but it's fully regarded. And rights of those wronged are not deprived, but acknowledged. Look if you would at verse 13. He says, Whom I wish to keep with me, he's talking about Onesimus, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but voluntary or as an expression of your own will. I understand that you and I as believers, we don't have rights, we're slaves. This is talking about legal entitlements. I mean, Paul had authority to even command some of those be relinquished at a, at a certain level, but he appealed, and now he asked for consent. He, he doesn't compel him. Now think about this. Paul sent Onesimus back personally. I mean, think about what's going on here. Here's Philemon. He is, a, we would assume, a wealthy Christian. The, the church is meeting in his home. There weren't buildings, church buildings at, at that point. And it's been years since he's seen Onesimus, and he's probably heard about Paul and what's going on with him. And Paul sends Onesimus back. And in his own hand, he takes this this letter. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see Onesimus walking into your house and then handing you a letter? And you have no idea what it says. And when you open it up, the first words you read are Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. What must have flooded his mind? I don't know. MacArthur said Paul introduces this letter different from all of his others. He doesn't start. He normally starts by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here he starts by saying, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. And he says that because he's appealing to something even greater than his apostleship. He, he was a living example of what he was appealing for. He's going to ask Philemon to do something that's breathtakingly hard because Philemon had been done wrong. He, the contrast between what was deserved by Onesimus and what was requested by Paul was like the Grand Canyon. And he's a slave who deserves death, but... He's asking that he be forgiven. But he appealed that way so Philemon would have the opportunity to, de to decide himself. And that's the second point. The decision would be out of grace, not compulsion, so he would get the blessing of choosing to forgive. And some would argue, well, but, I mean, but God forgave him. And look, he's now serving Christ by, by serving Paul. So why do this? I mean, why send him on this dangerous journey? I mean, if he's caught at any point during the, the, the way, he's arrested. So why take that kind of risk? And if he's this valuable, why send him back? I mean, Philemon may have had him put to death. So let him stay with Paul. Isn't God's forgiveness enough? And the short answer is no, it's not. I mean, it's the most important. If God's forgiven you, then, then that's the most important thing. But it's not enough for Philemon and it's not enough for Onesimus. And whether a human being forgives you or not, that has no effect on your standing before God and you're secure in Christ. But the rights of those wronged must be acknowledged if you are forgiven by God. I mean, if a man 
who's a drunk driver gets saved through the trauma of killing someone. That other person, if they're a believer, they get to go to, to heaven, the person that, that was killed, but the rights of those wronged are not denied. The consequences are left up to God, but those rights are acknowledged. And although Onesimus was repentant, Philemon could not be rightly denied, so he had to return, and Philemon gets to decide what's done to him. Look at verse 14. Here's really where it comes together. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything. Why? Here's where Christianity makes the difference. I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but by your own choice. I want you to notice why the rights are acknowledged. It's not so Philemon can demand them, but so that he could have the opportunity to relinquish them freely and to do that for God and to receive the benefit of that. It's like your Christian liberty, your Christian freedom in, in Galatians. It was for freedom that you have been set free. Only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but enslave yourselves. Rather, enslave yourselves for one another. You and I have been set free from the, all the ceremonial trappings of the Mosaic Law and all the things that we are so thankful that we don't have to do, not so we can enjoy ourselves, but so we can enslave ourselves to others. God says the the right to repay someone who sins against you is to provide you an opportunity to do good. God is not acknowledging Philemon's right so that he can demand them to be ruthless. He's putting Philemon in a position to bless and be blessed with his free forgiveness. In forgiveness, God never says the person that you sin against has no rights concerning your sin. They have the right to hold you accountable or not, and they can exercise that right to forgive as well. But not by compulsion voluntarily, and that's an important distinction. Because as Christians, when we forgive others, we, we do that as an act of our, our volition. We, we look at the debt owed to us by someone else, and then we look at the debt that we owed God, and then we choose to forgive. And in exercising that, it's a privilege to do what the Lord does. It almost seems like a, it's like a paradox, isn't it? Am I commanded to forgive? Or is it my choice to forgive? And the answer is both. I mean, you might think of it like giving, Christian giving. All you have is the Lord's and you're commanded to give. And yet you're told to do so freely and cheerfully. Well, if I'm commanded to do it, how can I do it freely and how can I do it cheerfully? Am I commanded to forgive or do I have the choice to forgive? And the reason that you give freely and cheerfully is because you know what God has given you. He's given you the ability to work and the opportunity to even make money in His kind providence. And so you then give freely. And you're commanded to forgive as a Christian. And yet you're the one that makes that choice. But you do that because of what God has forgiven you. 
And an Onesimus had to submit himself to the one, that's Philemon, who had the right to punish him and thereby accept whatever came. And then the decision to exercise that right was totally in Philemon's hand. And that was a gracious gift that the Lord gave to Philemon. Because the decision to exercise that right was in Philemon's hand, but Philemon's heart was in the hand of the Lord's. And both of the men were totally different because of, because of that. Here's the third application of scriptural forgiveness. It's the relationship to God and His church that's applied. Look, if you would, at what he says in verse 15. So, gives him an example of the suffering that he's going through in, in being imprisoned. Then he gives thanks for Philemon, and, and then he makes an appeal. He acknowledges the wrong that was done and, and the right that he has, and then he puts that right in Philemon's hands so Philemon would have the blessing of relinquishing it. And then he goes a little bit further. Gives him something else to think about. Look, if you would, at verse 15. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So the third application of scriptural forgiveness is relationships to God and His church are, are applied. And he talks about this unseen providence. That's what he appeals to. And then he talks about this new added relationship. One relationship doesn't go away. Uh, Onesimus is still a slave. And Philemon is still the master. Salvation didn't change that. But a new relationship has been added. Now he is a beloved brother in Christ. So Paul, in Christian forgiveness, reminds us that rights are not demanded, but they're acknowledged, but they're exercised in light of our relationship to God. So Paul reminds Philemon, when choosing to exercise your rights, brother, take two things into account. Take God's providence into account and your spiritual relationship to to this one that I'm asking you to forgive. Paul says in verse 15, for perhaps, which means consider this. Think about this fact, Philemon, as you're considering. I mean, he's already told him, think about me. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Think about what the Lord has done for you. you I give thanks to, to God always for you because you're, you're a believer. Now think about this, Philemon. Think about the fact that all of this could have been God's unseen providence producing something good. This is a hard and yet comforting truth. Consider God could have been at work in the pain and the evil that came to you, Philemon. That's, that's what he's saying. Consider that's possible and that it's possible that, that through that it's producing something far better than, than if it wouldn't have come. Now again, he's not denying that it was sin and evil. And, and while it's evil and sinful for Onesimus to run away and steal, 
He's saying it could be God overturning the evil of Onesimus to produce eventual good by saving him. That's a hard and yet comforting truth. He ran away an unconverted slave, but he returns a beloved brother. And Paul says, consider, he may not have become a brother without that path. If he hadn't run away from you in his guilt trying to escape and, and ended up in Rome where I just happened to be, I mean, you can't orchestrate that. Only the Lord can do that. I mean, how does a runaway slave bumped into an apostle in the capital city of Rome, the apostle that just happens to know Philemon, to hear the gospel to be saved, to then be sent on a journey back? How does that happen? Only the Lord can do those kinds of things. And he says, consider that God does do those kinds of things. And consider that what God brings out of those type of providential things that you can't control, and sometimes it scrambles your brain to even think how it could happen. Out of those things, God brings good. Your loss, whatever it might be, your child's sin, your marriage pain, the death that came the tragedy, all may have come because of sin and somebody's responsible for that sin. But sin is never the end with God. Sin does not rule over this earth. God's sovereign grace rules over this earth. And it's a platform. God uses sin as a platform to display His grace. You think God knew about the fall before the fall ever happened? So why in the world would God allow the fall? Well, there's all kinds of answers to that, but I can tell you one for sure. It wasn't because he was impotent to do anything about it. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he allowed it in order to put his grace on display. And through all of that providence, he, he would bring about redemption. He'd put his justice on display for those who will reject the gospel, and, and he'll, put on his, he'll put his mercy on display for those that he woos unto himself through Christ. He takes sinners and He makes them saints. God brings Solomons out of David's and Bathsheba's. And some of you are that this very morning, like me. And there are things that happen that we can't explain and we don't have answers to the why question. Why this timing? Why did that take place? Why didn't He do that? When all of that happens, Paul says, don't forget... That even though you may not understand why, God may be working. And what God may be working, even in the pain, may be something greater and better than what would have been if it had not happened. Now, like you, I've heard all of the shallow applications of Romans 8, 28. You know, the woman leaves her husband uh, and finds a new man and says, Well, it must have been God's will because He works all things together for good. That's nonsense. You know that's nonsense. Don't twist your sin and blame God for it. Paul doesn't say this wasn't wrong. Notice providence doesn't negate the right of Philemon or the need for Onesimus to confess and face it. Notice it doesn't mean that God caused the sin or the wrong. Paul just says, don't forget the providence of God or His overworking of human decisions and events can bring about His purposes. Like the cross of Jesus Christ. The people who did it are responsible and they'll face consequence for that and yet it was God's predetermined plan that Jesus would die 
the hands of sinners. And his purposes should be considered more than our rights being violated. Because God at times can at times can work good purposes through wrong and the end can be better than the beginning. The wonderful blessing of James chapter 1, when you count it all joy as you enter into diverse temptations or many different types of trials, is not because you love trials. The very next verse tells you why to count it, add it up, calculate it all. When you calculate this trial and everything about this trial, when you add it all up, the sum is what you're looking for. What is the sum? Not that you enjoyed it, but what came out of it is maturity. And if you lack wisdom, then you ask God as you go through the, the trial. What that verse says is that for a believer, a believer can have joy because God forces all the circumstances in a believer's life to obey His work. And His work is to conform you into the image of His Son. And only God can do that. And He does do that because we live in a fallen world and sin is all around us. And Paul just says... That's something you're to remember when you have a request for forgiveness and when you grant it. So in verse 11, Onesimus, as an unrepentant slave, was useless to Philemon and Paul, and now in his repentance he is useful to both of them, and God for that matter, because repentance changes you. Paul would not be saying this to Philemon. If Onesimus was unrepentant or unsaved or unchanged, I mean, he may have a completely different message. But Onesimus was repentant. And when God changes you, you're not the same person. You don't think the same. You don't act the same. You don't even have the same nature. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're different. And because you're different, a new relationship is applied. Look at verse 16, the end of it. No longer a slave, but more than a slave. He doesn't negate the fact that that he's still a slave. But now also a beloved brother. He didn't cease in his relationship to Philemon. He didn't, didn't remove the authority or rights of Philemon, but a relationship was added and the new one is greater than the others because it transcends earth. He's now a beloved brother. I mean, you think about this? You don't find anywhere in the New Testament where the gospel was sent out to overturn social norms or start a revolution. There's no place in the New Testament where it says, Masters, free all your slaves. Or, 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 or have a revolution against Rome. Or, or, or change any other social structure. Uh, let, uh, because of the gospel... Take all the money from the rich and give it to the poor. None of that is in the New Testament because that, that, that's so small compared to the transforming power of the gospel, it's not even dealt with. God aims at the right place for the heart because if the heart is transformed, then the person who was greedy freely gives and the wicked master then treats his slave well. And all you do is change, this for, uh, change one system for another with evil people in the midst of it. And so now he's a beloved brother. 
I mean, in the New Testament church, in the New Testament church, there were, there were masters and there were slaves in the same church. And you realize that, that 1 Corinthians says the majority of believers were, were, were lowly, they're slaves. The majority of Christians have come from the, the low ranks there. And some of those slaves were elders in the church. And their master submitted to them as they preached the word of God. But when they left on Sunday, then they were a faithful master and a faithful slave. Transformed. Beloved brothers. So Paul says when applying forgiveness, remember this relationship is added. There's a vertical and horizontal realities that should be considered. But when choosing, the vertical rules over all. God is saving people for His kingdom, and sometimes He does that when they get in a real mess. And in that mess, they realize the bigger mess that they're in is the mess that they're in with God. And for those sinners who are forgiven by God, they're your beloved brothers because you have the same master who also forgave you. But even with both of those realities, there's still one final application here, and it has to do with restitution. The fourth application of Scripture forgiveness is repayment of what is owed is offered. Responsibility for wrong is not denied but fully regarded. Rights of those wronged are not deprived but acknowledged. Relationship to God and His providence are applied. And then repayment of what is owed is offered. Look, if you would, at verse 17. He says, If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own life as well. He says, receive him. He says, accept him. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I will repay it. And And notice he states two things of of what could be owed. He says, if he has wronged you or if he owes you. Two completely different words. If, If he's committed personal offense against you or the other means financial loss. Personal offense and financial loss. Onesimus had committed an offense against Philemon. Philemon had been good to him. He kept up, kept up his end of the bargain. He gave him home. He gave him food. He gave him work. He fulfilled his responsibility as a good master, and we don't know exactly how Onesimus came into his debt, but he sinned against him, and now Philemon also lost money and was stolen from when he ran away. And Paul acknowledges both of that, and then he offers to repay it. Now, now think about this. Think about this offer more than just glossing over it. Notice he doesn't say, you must forgive the debt. He acknowledges that there's a debt, but notice and remember Onesimus was a slave. So he doesn't have the money to pay. But the money had to be repaid because he stole it and it was right. And so he acknowledges something is clearly owed. And he doesn't say that because you're both Christians, you must now forget about it. It's charged, it's owed, it must be repaid. And Onesimus has no ability to pay it. Paul just offers to pay it himself. Do you remember when I told you that 
MacArthur noted that Paul was offering an example of himself when he starts the letter by calling himself a prisoner of the Lord. I'm here based upon wrong that's done to me. So wrong was done to you by this slave, and I'm going to appeal to you as, as an example. He didn't say, follow my apostleship. He, he said, follow my example as someone who's gladly suffering wrong for the Lord. Now, Paul gives Philemon an even greater example, one that's much more significant. And he also gives that same example to Onesimus. Paul followed the example of Christ to offer to repay Onesimus's debt to reconcile a sinner. And he wants Philemon to do the same. Here's one of the clearest pictures in the Bible, I think, of what Christ did for us. He says, add you with me, there's association. Charge it to my account, there's substitution. I will repay it for the purpose of reconciliation. There's an atonement that's, that's offered. And what we owed God for our sin, we had no money to pay, just like Onesimus. But Jesus Christ says to the Father, charge that to my account. I will repay it. And he went to the cross and he paid it. And God required it of him, didn't he? The cross is the greatest testimony that our sin is a real debt to God. If your sin was not a real debt, I mean, people rail against penal substitution. That, that they're, they call it cosmic child abuse, that God poured that out on Christ on the cross, a denial. These are scoffers and mockers. But there are people that call themselves Christians that say that. The cross is the greatest testimony that your sin was a real debt to God because if it wasn't for the cross, then, then if it wasn't for sin and a debt, then, then why the cross? I mean, what's the purpose? There is no purpose. But there was real debt, and so there was a real bloody cross, and it's also the greatest expression of sacrificial love that there ever was. And then after the cross, Jesus goes before the Father and says, Receive them as you would me. My little children, I'd have you that you sin not, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the Father receives us. And now we're back to where we started. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. No one guilty is just cleared. And not one iniquity was failed to be visited on the Savior for those who have been forgiven or will be forgiven. But because it was, God forgives the iniquity of those who look to Him. I've heard all kinds of examples for this. You have two. I heard it's like one man ran up a bill in a market and he couldn't pay it. And, and so someone took the entire bill and they put it on their account and they, and they paid for it. And 
heard somebody else say, no, 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 that, that's not good enough because let's say someone didn't run up a bill, they stole the groceries at the market. They were caught red-handed, they couldn't pay it, and then the owner of the market comes along and wipes out the entire bill and put it on his head and counted. Pay. The problem with that is we're not talking about groceries. We're talking about sin before a holy God who gave us breath and life and every single day pours out His grace to us and every single day stands and says, Come to me and I will forgive you. That God, we said, I could care less what you think or what you do and we lived in rebellion and broke His laws. And that same God went to the cross and said, put it on my account, I will pay. And he paid it. And he paid it all. And that substitution and atonement is what Christ did for us, and that's what Paul offers to do for this slave in a human way, while in no way denying the debt. Look at verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Paul says, I have confidence not only will you do this, but you'll do it even more. Why? Why can Paul say that? Because he knew Philemon had experienced the same grace himself. And that's what Christians do. They grant the mercy given to them. There's a conduit for it. I receive mercy, I give mercy. Receive mercy, I give mercy. I receive forgiveness, I forgive And how God works the process of forgiveness is is here. We don't just do the bare minimum. We go exceedingly above and much more. God appeals and He doesn't deny wrongs committed or the right to forgive. And He says we ask for consent. And as we do, we consider God's greater plan. And yet none of that negates the need for the actions of genuine repentance. But forgiven sinners forgive other sinners. Lavishly and way beyond what they're asked for. And so that brings us to me and you this morning. Where are you with forgiveness? Forgiveness to God. You owe a debt. And if you don't understand that it's a debt, then that's the first place you need to start. You need to understand sin, what it is. Stop listening to yourself or the world or anybody else. Go to the Bible. See what the Bible says about your offense. You a debt that you, you can't pay. And that bill is going to come due one day. And when it does, you'll have to pay for it at that point. But Christ offers to pay that debt for you if you'll come to Him by acknowledging your sin and asking for mercy. And if you will, God will receive you just as He did Christ. Christian, do you need to grant someone forgiveness today? What a blessed privilege that God has granted you. A forgiven sinner gets to imitate the Lord and grant another sinner mercy who's genuinely seeking it. God gives mercy to those who are merciful. And we have received great mercy, haven't we? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for truth. Um, just gives us clarity. It cuts through the clutter of our minds, especially when we're in the throes of something like this. Trying to figure out where we stand with God, uh, how we stand with others. So you just push aside all the noise and you, you just show us. But now, Lord, we ask for strength to do what we've heard. So I pray for anyone who has never come to Christ. Today they would receive the full forgiveness offered them through the cross. And I pray for any Christian that needs to be forgiven or granted forgiveness, that grant forgiveness that they would. And the privilege the Lord's granted in Jesus' name. Amen.